We didn't make it all the way through chapter three. We're picking it up in verse 14. If you weren't here, um, have you heard the statement, your time is gonna come? (laughs) That's really what it's saying, right? A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to pluck, time to kill, time to break down, build up. That whole thing, that bird song, it's actually saying your time is gonna come. You won't stop these things. Doesn't matter if you're smiling and you're positive and you're nice, at some point you're going to weep. You can be the nicest person in the world. It's coming, your time's gonna come. So Solomon has kind of played that out. This is what, it's coming for you. And then he says this, this is the key. Verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. (laughs) Wow. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So this is man. We're gonna bounce between these extremes through life. You're not gonna stop it. It's coming. Your time's gonna come. God, though, different than us, right? There's two universal truths. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not it, okay? God is different than us. And the way that Solomon puts it is this, what he builds lasts. What he does endures. Ever built something that didn't last, right? I bought a Volkswagen, a 1965 Volkswagen bus back in, 2001, it was a hippie shuttle, had on the front of it this, this mural of this crazy face, and then it had no war, and then it was mirrored, so it, on the other side it said, um, Rawan, I don't know what that meant. So just, just a full-on hippie shuttle. And I stripped it down to nothing, I spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on that thing. Got it all painted, I'm driving it. It was actually the Monday after Easter. Just a happy day, driving to work, going down Rogue River Highway, turning where you go to the 7th Street Bridge. And it's like 7.30 in the morning. And there's a guy in this Volvo station wagon. And he's in the left-hand lane. I'm in the right-hand lane. And he's doing like 15. So I'm like, oh, I don't know what he's doing. So I just kept going. At the last minute, he decides he's gonna turn into that glass shop. Just rams into the side of me, ricochets me up onto the grass up there, destroys the side of my van, just wipes it out. I can't even get out of the van. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, Easter was yesterday, right? (laughs) Be godly, be kind, be Christian. So they have these little slider windows in if you've ever been in a Volkswagen. So he gets out of his car, I can't get out, I'm stuck. So, So he gets out and I slide the window open and he comes up to me, he goes, going pretty fast, weren't you, fellow? I was like, this is a Volkswagen bus. <laughs> really? <laughs> I was about to go, instead of Christian, go Grants Pass caveman on him. <laughs> Show you slow, right? He destroyed it, bent the frame of that bus. It was, it's never gonna be the same. I just sold it, right? All this work, all this energy doesn't last. And my story could be multiplied, what, a million times? Wrecking yards are full of things that don't endure. God's different. What God does endures. So what Solomon says is this, relax. The word fear there could just as easily be translated awe. So God, what he does endures forever. God's plan is going to happen. So guess what? Be in awe of him. Relax. It's been rightly said that you and I are on the ship of salvation. And you can do all kinds of things on the ship of salvation. You can get up on the top deck and enjoy it. You can get sick. You can be in the bottom. You can stay in your room. You can be mad at it. You you can do all kinds of things on a ship. But guess what you cannot do? You can't change its destination. The captain says, we're going into that port and that's where we're going. So you and I can relax. Ephesians 1.11 says this, God works everything 
after the counsel of his will. What he does endures, relax. And then lastly, he says, here's what God's been doing. What he does endures, but the other side of this, and God seeks what has been driven away. God, what God does endures, but there's another side to God that God seeks what's been driven away. Now, what has God done that's been driven away? You, me, creation, right? That something broke. And I think you get this hint, maybe I'm pressing this text too far, but I don't think so. That, that God, his greatest work was not creation. You get two chapters on that. God's greatest work is redemption, seeking what's been driven away. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, he says this, there's going to be the restoration of all things, palingenesia in the Greek, a again genesis, that what you saw in the beginning where there was a good place for mankind to dwell in perfection, that's coming again. That what has been driven away I'm bringing it back. That God's greatest work is redemption, is it not? You see, with the fall, what happens? Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They really hide treason against the creator of the cosmos. What does God do to them? Pound them, kill them, destroy them? No, comes and seeks them. What happened? Makes them a promise. Hey, hope, hope. There's coming the seed of the woman and it will crush the serpent's head. There's hope, clothes them, right? Seeks what's been lost. Cain kills Abel. What does God do to Cain? Crush him, kill him, destroy him? No. Cain, what have you done? Are you kidding me? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground to me. What have you done? And then Cain says, you know what? People are gonna find me and they're gonna kill me. So what does God do for Cain? Puts a mark on him to protect him. Protects a murderer, right? You've got Jacob lies to his dad, steals from his brother, deceitful crook, runs away, fearing for his own life, ends up sleeping on a rock one night in Bethel and God appears to him. It doesn't say, I'm gonna get you for that. What does God say? I'm gonna keep you and protect you. You just go on and on. God is, God's greatest work is seeking those things that have been driven away over and over and over again. It's awesome. That's why Genesis ends with that brilliant verse that God is able to take what the enemy uses for evil and turn it for good. That's why Isaiah the prophet would say, he's able to take your ashes, the stuff that's all burnt out and junk, and he's able to give you beauty for it. Have you ever had something that seemed really bad turn out for good in your life? Right? You get fired from a job, you think, oh, it's the end of the world. And then you get a better job. You wanna buy this certain house and somebody else buys it. And you end up with a better house. If there's great opportunity and you miss out on it, but then it opens up a door for even a better opportunity. That, that's what this little text is saying from verse one of chapter three, through verse 15, if we were to concentrate that and summarize it, it's this, relax, relax. God's different than you and me. We're gonna bounce between these extremes. God doesn't. So relax. It might be like this. And this is a, I questioned if I should use this, but I'm gonna use it anyways, because I tend toward that anyways, using illustrations maybe I shouldn't. Uh, but I was reading about this recently that People that drink and get into an accident typically don't get injured or hurt as bad. Have you heard that? And they, they're learning why. Number one is uh, your reflexes are way slowed down. So you don't stiffen up and like really compound your in injuries or whatever it is. But there's a second reason. It's physiological. That when you are in a really bad accident and you have trauma to your body, your brain goes into overdrive and just tries to like, it just freaks out. And it's actually the brain freaking out physiologically that kills you. But guess what happens to a person that's drunk? Their brain doesn't even freak out. So it gives paramedics and other people a lot longer to come and heal and why? Because they're relaxed, right? It's like 
relax. Hey, you're gonna, this is gonna happen. But God, what he does endures, relax, right? Or, or in punching boxing terms, what do, what do boxers have to do when they get punched? You gotta roll, well, duck, that's even better. <laughs> or you gotta roll with the punch, right? If you're gonna take a punch, what do you have to do? You don't stiffen up and be like, all right, hit me hard. No, you roll with it, you, you absorb it. It's, hey, life's gonna come at you. Trust God and roll with the punches because here's what we know. He's working all things. The ship's gonna get to the port he wants it to. If you're a believer in him, all things are working out for good. And we know this, verse 11, the brilliant, brilliant verse 11 of chapter three, he's gonna make everything beautiful in its time. Whatever you think is messed up and broken, God will make it beautiful in his time. So that's that section. Now Solomon went pretty high. He's gonna go back into his manic depression. Verse 18. Moreover, I saw under the sun, now he's left, he's mentioned God a bunch. He's left that. Now, once again, he's looking more at life under the sun without God. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, I have that little thing underlined. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for this is his lot. And who can bring him to see what will be after? Depressed again. And he gets depressed because of three things. Number one, injustice. Where there should be justice, there's wickedness. Where there should be righteousness, there's wickedness. I read a story today on if you're going to shoot somebody, it said, shoot them in a city. Because the odds are, in a big city, if you shoot someone, you have better odds of not being caught than being caught. That's what Solomon's talking about. Man, where there should be justice for these bad things, it's not happening. But it's even worse than that. It's really corrupt judges. I read a book, I think I mentioned it a while ago. It's called Just Mercy. It's by Brian Stevenson. Um, uh, I, I say I cry in books. This one, I, there was, I cried so many times in that book because of injustice, especially to young people. I mean, just heartbreaking. And it's not like, hey, this is a book way back then. This it started in the 70s and it's up to modern times where he's in the South, just people, just injustice after injustice. And you're like, oh, that's brutal. Oh, I feel just like Solomon. Man, someone needs to make this right. When kids are little, what do they say? A lot. It's just not fair, right? I've got an 18 year old, she doesn't say it anymore. All right, my five year old Myron still says it, but something happens just in the process of time. It's just like, yeah, nah. that's the way life is. That's not fair. So he gives an answer and this is an answer. And I love, how, I love verse 17. I said in my heart, I had to tell myself about this. When I saw wickedness, when I saw bad stuff, when I saw it happening, I had to say in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. You gotta tell yourself that. There's a great story where Jesus casts out the demons out of the demoniac and throws them into the pigs. You guys know that story? And the demons come out and they say to Jesus, they're like, hey, what are you doing here? It's not our time, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. 
They even know it. There's coming a time when time's up. And they're like, hey, it's not our time yet. We still have some time left. It's not our time yet. Are you glad God's waited for that time? I am, I wouldn't be saved. I'm glad he waited till 1990. You're probably glad he didn't wait, you know, till whenever you got saved, right? One of the main attributes of God is this, his patience. The very first autobiographical statement where God says, he tells, hey, this is what I'm like, it's found in Exodus 34, verse six. And it begins by saying, I'm long suffering. I'll suffer long. I'll give people as much time as they possibly can. But eventually, time will be up. But you and I now, here's what we gotta do. We have to tell our souls, let God have his time. People get bitter because they don't let God have his time. Instead of letting God be the judge and God deciding when he's gonna deal with that, we wanna take it upon ourselves and be like, I'm gonna get them. And then we get all mad and we become bitter instead of saying, no, I'm gonna let God have his time. Disagreements happen, problems with people happen. You're like, I'm gonna make it right. Well, probably not. Let God have his time. Like this is pure wisdom. If you let God have his time, oh, you're set free from all these things. God, you will judge these things, right? Billy Graham used to say over and over and over when people would bring up stuff about others, he would say, God's God's job is to judge them. My job is to love them. I've always appreciated that about Billy Graham. God's job is to judge them. My job is to love them. Let God judge them in his time. So injustice bothers him. Number two, I just say the beastness of people, right? He has this kind of, we're just like beasts. We have this beastness to us and it's weird. When you look at what kids joke about, what's their main topic? Potty talk, right? For some reason, potty talk is really funny to children. Now, why is that? C.S. Lewis has this great essay on it. You can Google it. Why is it that kids just gravitate toward potty talk? I think this is why. I think we're shocked that we have to do those things because we know we were created better. That we are little G gods, right? Image bearer gods. We're not the creator God, but we're little. We're actually called gods. John chapter eight, uh, Psalm 82. We're little G. And it surprises us that this stuff happens to us. That there's weird stuff that the body does that you're like, that should not happen. And we kind of know that intrinsically. Ah, uh-uh. We know intrinsically we should not die. And yet Solomon says the same thing happens to us. Big deal, you have an opposable thumb. It's gonna rot off your body just like your dog's claw. Big whoop, right? You're no different than a beast. You're gonna die just like your dog Rufus or your daughter's chinchilla or whatever other pet you bought that now you regret you did. You're gonna end up in the ground with them, right? And that's his problem. He's like, it doesn't seem right. We're beastly. There's a beastness to us that doesn't make sense. Like uh, there, there was a moment as a parent where I, I'll tell you, I was just shocked. So Elijah John, good kid now. But when he was about two, he would do this thing whenever he felt like he was wronged, when we didn't give him everything he wanted. So we said no to him or something. He would take his hands and he would do what we called the face rake. And he would just grab your, just anything he could on the way down on your face, lips, nose, eyes, just rake your face. Two years old. Where did he learn that from? Right? If Charity goes and gets the last scoop of ice cream, I'm not like, raw, right? I don't do that. No one does that at my home. Where in the world did he get that? Like there's a beastness in us that it's just, it's weird. It's weird. I don't know who decided to call creation Mother Nature, but that's the absolute worst name. Wicked stepmother nature, yes, but it's brutal out there. And so Solomon says, there's this side that I just can't get in. And we know intrinsically that's not how we're supposed to be, that we have had our crowns, read Psalm chapter eight. We've had our crowns, our glory knocked off by the fall. And now to this day, we feel it like this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. 
And then lastly is this question, verse 21, about eternity. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Ever asked that question? I have. Probably the main times I ask it is when I do a kid's funeral. There's something about, especially if it's graveside and it's a little casket. There's just something in that moment where you're like, this is so wrong. What, what's happening here? Hard. That's a hard question. And there's really just a couple answers to it, right? Number one, you die and there's nothing else, right? When you die, that's it. There's no, you just go into the ground. It's circle of life. That's number one answer. Number two answer is reincarnation. Better luck next time. That's reincarnation. Number three, what I call it the scales, right? This is a lot of people, they kind of think, well, if there is an eternity, that there's this scale thing that when you go and you die, you stand before some kind of a judge and your life is weighed, right? And if your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff, you go up. If your bad stuff outweighs your good stuff, you go down, right? That's a lot of people's idea of what happens when you die. Would we accept that today though? No, let's say a guy lived a really good life until he's like 50 and then he kills somebody. So he goes before a judge and he says this to the judge, judge, look, man, I've been so good for 50 years. I've never been arrested. I've never done anything wrong. I volunteer, I'm a member of the Rotary. I donated a kidney to somebody. All right, so I killed one guy. Come on, doesn't my good stuff outweigh this one bad act? What if the judge said, you know what, you're right. Go, you're free. We'd be in an uproar, right? We know that doesn't work. The scale thing doesn't work. So there's a fourth option. And it's Revelation chapter 20. And it says this, those that believe in Jesus have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And they move, move into chapter 21 and 22, new heavens, new earth. And those that do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, they go into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. And the proof the Bible gives for that is really one thing, the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus defeated death three days after the cross, that's your proof. And if you've read, and there's great, great books on it, it's one of the most provable events in history that three days after the cross, Jesus walked out, defeating death and telling you and me, your spirit goes upwards if you believe in me you will join with me, let not your heart be troubled. Those are your four options. I think number four is best and the most truthful. Solomon asking the question though, I don't know, I don't know. And I'll tell you, you really talk to somebody on their deathbed and I've had the, the distinct privilege of this, talking to people that questioning it all, all of them feel verse 11, God's put eternity into their heart. They feel something in that moment. Even if they haven't believed in Jesus, even if they don't, they're questioning and they're asking and they're wrestling with it because there is a resonance in our heart that we know this isn't the end. This is just closing page one. And we start a brand new book as we walk through those doors. Solomon though, kind of busted up. So that's chapter three. Chapter four, he goes manic again. Again. I saw all the oppression that's done under the sun and behold the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who had already died more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He sees oppression and it bothers him. The cycle that so many centuries have been here where people give their life and give their body to a job and then once their body gives out, they're done with them, just cast them off. That's oppression. The worst I ever saw of this was, uh, I've made five trips to India 
and they have a, well, it's illegal to have a caste system, but it still exists because they have a group of people called untouchables. And one of the jobs that an untouchable does is that they're called sewer rats. So when the big pipes that carry sewage out to whatever a river get clogged up, they pull off a manhole in their little skivvies and whatever, they just jump in there and they kick whatever it is all the way out to the river. Just a nasty job. So there was this great article on it in the National Geographic where they were saying that this is wrong to treat humans this way. You should not treat humans this way. If someone's gonna do that, you should pay them an exorbitant amount of money, like micro big time money. Um, and then they interviewed these people that were the top cast. And they said, well, well, if we take away the caste system, who will come in and clean my toilet? That was her answer. If we take away the caste system, who's gonna clean my toilet? I was like, you? How about you? There's a plunger, try it, right? That's what this is saying, that there are these systems that have been put in place where the bottom rung, the untouchables, they have no power. No one's on their side. And they just keep being stepped on century after century after century after century, right? And Solomon is like, man, I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living. Like he's, he's suicidal depressed from this. And I wanna bring this back one more time because the circumstances surrounding Solomon are not leading to his depression. You couldn't orchestrate better circumstances than Solomon had. Money, power, reputation, right? A thousand women. Maybe that's what was causing the depression. I don't know. I mean, possible. Right? He, he's, you name it, he's got it. That depression, yeah, it can have a chemical component. It can have these other components, but there is a spiritual component to it as well. So the psalmist David, Solomon's dad, and Psalm 42 says this, oh, my soul, why are you disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. That when I talk to people that are depressed, I always look at the all three areas that you are. Is this, have you, you know, seen a physician? Um, what kind of, has something changed in your life? And bro, there are spiritual powers. And these spiritual powers, they can mess you up. And you gotta turn to Jesus in these situations. I always go for those three. Solomon, man, he's got the greatest circumstances in the world and he's still depressed. So his dad says, here's what you gotta do. You gotta talk to your soul, hope in God, hope in God, right? And then he gets this little phrase and he says, um, it would be best if you had not seen the evil deeds done under the sun. It's better not to know. I tend to agree with that. But we live in the wrong time to not know things, right? What's our age called? The information age, right? Because we have access to information. We, we have more access to information in a day than a person in, in 1800s had in his lifetime. In one day we do. Information, information, information. So I was listening to this podcast on um, YouTube. Every day, in one day, 400 and 32,000 hours of content are uploaded to YouTube. That is 50 years of information every day. That's insanity, isn't it? Because of that, they have to hire these people that are moderators because there's content that they don't want on there. And so they hire these people in and their job is to try, I think there's like 10,000 of them. And they just watch YouTube videos looking for illegal content. And this podcast said this, most of them do not make it to lunch on the first day because of how disturbing the content is, right? Your job is to look for beheadings. Oh, I'm leaving. I'm not doing that job. 30 bucks an hour. No, I'm not doing it. It's too hard. So I, I, I get this 100%. I wouldn't with that job either. And you read this and you just say, you know what we need? We need a king. Ecclesiastes is telling you what we need is a king a king that breaks these structures and, and makes things equitable. And we need a king, keeps telling you that, right? Then we looked at this on Sunday. Then I saw, verse four, that all toil and all skill and work 
come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no one other, either son or daughter, yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Sunday, we looked at work two Sundays ago. And verse four, Solomon says, what I notice about people working is the reason why they work hard is this motivation called envy. They want people to notice them or they want the same stuff as other people. And when I was reading this quite a while ago, I thought of this story, this book I read, it's called Dreamland. If you wanna know about the opioid crisis and how we got there, get the book Dreamland, phenomenal. Tracks back to um, the United Nations in the 1980s. They made pain a vital sign. And then in the 90s, Congress made pain a vital sign. Well, the problem with that is this. How do you measure pain? Right, we can measure temperature. We can measure blood pressure. We can make sure you're breathing. We can measure uh, heart rate. We can do that. How do you measure pain? You have to ask somebody, are you in pain? Guess what addicts say? I'm in really bad pain. And then the law was, you have to offer them pain medication. Well, you just set up a system. Woo, right? So that was, that's in this book. And so it talks about like, you know, uh, Oxycontin and, and just, just, it's just like a perfect storm. And then we started shutting down Oxycontin. What happened was black tar heroin from Mexico started flooding in. And what was interesting is they went down to Halasco, this region in Mexico where, where black tar heroin is, is the, the poppy seeds are found and whatever, whatever they do, they, they, they get it from there. And th- there was these young men who would leave Halasco. They would travel up, they'd, they'd get into America. They'd go live in LA or whatever in like a bad apartment, work six months straight, sleeping on uh, carpet, working their tail off, not spending a dime for one reason, to go back to their hometown with new Levi's, a new Stetson, a new shirt, and throw a three-day party. Because they wanted people back home to know, I've arrived. And they would go broke. And they'd just go back up, do it again for six months, all to go home and say, look what I've done. That's the power. I'm like, that's power. That's power. Envy. Solomon knows it. If you know his story, when Solomon starts building stuff, he makes 3,000 shields of gold. Why do you make a shield of gold? You can take that out and fight with that? No way, right? That was the 3,000-year-old uh, 22-inch spinner on your big car. That's what it was. Look at me, I've arrived. Check this out, right? He had 3,000 of them. It was a way of showing off, look what I have. He had a throne made of ivory. How many elephants had to die for that? Right? I'm sitting on a thousand elephants right now. That's what he's saying. I have that much power. Look at my ivory throne. He gathered lions and monkeys, right? He had a monkey before Michael Jackson or Justin Bieber or any of these dudes. He had it way before, right? What's he saying? Look at me. He's showing off. You know how you beat envy? Here's why I think you beat envy. Anyone can share in your sorrow, but a true friend can share in your success. It's much easier to share in someone's sorrow. Oh, bro, I'm so sorry, than in someone's success. Especially if it's the success that you want because envy just pops right up. So you wanna get married, you and your friend that you wanna get married and she or he gets married first. Can you celebrate that? Are you jealous? You guys decide, hey, New Year's, we're gonna lose 10 pounds. You need, we're gonna lose 10 pounds. And your friend loses 10 pounds and you find their 10 pounds. You gonna rejoice with them? Or are you gonna be like, ah, oh. right? It's much harder to celebrate 
someone's success than their sorrow. You know when you beat envy, when you can start actually celebrating the thing that you want. I got it, man. Every time I hear a message, one of two things happens to me. Number one is, I could totally do better than that. Or I'm such a loser, I'll never be that good. I'd go back to preschool, right? It's the same thing, man. It's, that, it's in all of us. Solomon's hitting it on the head, right? The, the shirt you wear to the gym, why do you wear that shirt? Man, it shows off my guns. My guns look big in this shirt, right? Do you go to the gym for health or for abs? Which is it? Like it's an amazing push. Envy is, if you really dig down on envy, it's amazing. And I'm telling you, envy is the one thing you will never whip on your own. It's something you gotta say, Jesus changed my heart. I see this in me and it's such a robber. It's, it's so destructive. It's never good. Envy's never like, hey, that's really, no. Envy is always taking what really matters from you. And it's one of those things you just say, Jesus, change my heart, change me. I don't wanna be that way. I wanna be able to celebrate when other people succeed in the way that I want to. I just wanna, it's, if you can do that, you know how much more celebrating you'll have? How much more laughter you'll have? How much more fun you'll have? Because you've got all these people succeeding and you're enjoying it with them. Man, so much good stuff. So he hits it and he says, here's what some people do. Because of envy, they just work their tail off. But then other people, verse five, because of that same envy, they do nothing. They just get lazy. You know why you do that? Because your way of saying, oh, I won't fail. Now you won't see me fail. I'll just never try, right? Same, same motivation. I don't want anybody to know that I, I tried something and failed. Better to do nothing than to try something and fail. Because then, then I could always say, oh yeah, I could have done that. Oh, I could have been a contender. Oh, I could have been an Olympic snowboarder. I just didn't want to. You have that, right? And then Solomon says this, that dude consumes himself. M. Scott Peck, that famous psychologist said this, when, when he counseled people, he said, every time I tracked back through their problem, it always went back to laziness. He said, every problem, I didn't care what it was, if I tracked back far enough and dug into that person hard enough, eventually I came to their problem was this, laziness. Stuck in verse five. In marriage, whatever, you're lazy, you're lazy. And it consumes them. I remember this guy, Mark and I were... Um, kind of counseling, talking with him. He'd lost his job and this was like 2008. And every time we'd see him, he'd come to church and, and a week later he'd come to church. And, and remember, we're just like, he just keeps looking worse and worse. And, and I, I think it was probably me that said it this way. Mark's way too nice. I'm like, it's like watching roadkill, right? It's just slowly decomposing. All of a sudden, you're like, dude, you're decomposing. Man, you gotta get doing something. Stop. You're consuming your own flesh. But the right way to do it is verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. It's not, hey, I'm overworking. It's not, hey, I'm quitting, just checking out. It's, you know what? I've done enough. I've done enough. It's when we studied this, I said, Mary and Martha, Mary had served enough and now she was doing something else. I think the way that you will know that you are in a good balanced spot is if you can take a Sabbath. Or you can just take a day and it's not about doing stuff or accomplishing something. That day is simply about being. I'm just being a human today. And I'm not trying to check off a list or make it all, you know, I'm just, what are you doing? Nothing. Good for you. You're not doing that every day. Six days you're working, but one day you're just, you just turn it off. And that shows, you know what? I'm balanced now. Like the Sabbath was made for us. It's healthy. It's right. It's good. Right? So, Verse seven, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to his toils. His eyes never satisfied the riches. He never asks, right? We looked at this on Sunday. They have found a correlation between the amount of money a man makes up to a certain point. As that money increases, the amount of time he spends with his kids decreases. It's sad. Gotta be careful. Now there's you know, limits to both of those. Gotta be careful. 
because you can start working so hard. I'm just trying to supply all the needs of my family. I'm just trying to, well, actually you've left your family behind and you're all alone now. Be careful of that. And you don't even ask the question, why am I doing all this? Right? One of the biggest regrets when I talk to men that are a little bit older than me, you know the biggest regret is? I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. Right? It's like cats in the cradle. That's why it's such a great song. Be careful. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So now he's gone through, hey, work. This guy that works really hard, he's all alone. And then he just kind of circles back and says, listen, true wealth is relationship. That's really what you want. You don't want to be all alone by yourself. You want relationships. Like what's the best sound in the world? Who laughing? A baby or a kid laughing? Good call. I agree. Like the, the, the greatest sound is a baby laughing, right? You, money can't buy that. That's brilliant. Would you rather be in a bank listening to money being counted or a nursery with kids laughing? Oh, give me the kids any day. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, it's, it's, it's that. Now, it, and he gives four reasons why. Number one, why, why do you want people? Why do you want, why do you want relationships? Why do you want uh, someone else? Number one, it makes work easier, right? You have a better reward. You ever try to do like construction all by yourself? It's miserable. Like today, we have these, these people coming in uh, to stay the night at our house. And so we're putting them out in my study. And uh, there was like a board that needed to be put up. And it's like 12 feet long. So I'm trying to do it myself. It's just, you know, driving me crazy. Because I'll get it set where I want it. And then I'll come over to the other side and I'll start pushing it up. And guess what it does? Tink, right? And you do that like four times. You're like, ah. So Charity walked down, I'm like, hey, would you hold this? Boom, it's done in like 10 seconds. Like that's, I, I, I don't know. I'd love to have somebody like figure it out. One guy working alone versus two is way more than double. You get way more than double because you're not having to figure out all these jigs and stuff to hold up the other side of the board. It's just, it's better. Plus it's just better, isn't it? Would you want to work with somebody than by yourself? Oh. You ever brainstorm by yourself? Right? It's not really a brainstorm, is it? It's like a brain dribble. <laughs> but you get a group of people and you start these ideas, whatever, kingdom talk, and it's like God's spirit fills you and you just end up in a spot. You're like, oh, I love where we just ended up. How'd that happen? More than one. More than one. Right? Number one, works easier. Number two, when you walk, they'll help. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has none another to lift him up. When someone, and you're walking along, let's say the sidewalk and they trip over a crack and they fall, what do you do? After you laugh at them, what do you do next? <laughs> you don't say, you stupid idiot. Man, what'd you fall for? That crack jump at you? Come on, right? No, you help them up. Listen, spiritually, we gotta do the same thing. Because sometimes I think, um, we think people that stumble in the Christian walk need us to tell them that they're morons. I'm gonna say 99 out of 100 don't need you to tell, they don't need that at all. They already know it. You know what they need? They need somebody to say, dude, I'm gonna lift you up and I'm gonna walk with you now. That's what they actually need. You're not alone in this anymore. I saw you fall, no problem, man. Give them the gospel. Jesus still loves you. There's hope, there's brand new mercies. Now let's walk together. That's what you need. Number four, or three, excuse me, you stay warm. Now, this is not a marriage verse. <laughs> this is, you're in a blizzard and you're gonna die. That's what it's saying. And if it wasn't for this other person, you're dead. This is man versus wild, right? They are saving your life. You keep warm. There's a ministry, it's called the ministry of presence where you're just with somebody and there's warmth in that. So a couple, uh, last Thursday, I had the chance to go see Ellen Starr. If you don't know her, she's 
a phenomenal woman. And uh, I just sat and she can't talk now. And uh, I just read to her. I just grabbed the book of Psalms and just read my favorite Psalms to her. That's all I did. Told her about my family, kissed her, said goodbye. That's the ministry of presence. Anybody can do it. It warms the house. The house is warm. That's what it just, you just warm a house up. Simple. We have, we have to fight technology on this because technology steals the brilliance of the ministry of presence. It just does. And then fourthly and finally, two are better than one. Why? Because they'll watch out for you. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will stand him. And threefold cord is not quickly broken. They'll watch out for you, right? Bro, I got your back. What does that mean? I got your back. If somebody's gonna attack you, I've got your back. The Christian walk is personal, but it's never supposed to be private. It's corporate. At all, you look at the New Testament, you read every, all the adjective, all the verbs, all the Greek there is always plural, almost always. It's plural, 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 plural. It's let us, us. That's why the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together even more as you see this day. Why? Because we're supposed to exhort each other to love and to good works. That's the community. Genesis 2, not good for man to be alone. What do we need? We need this thing called church and body and people. I think chapter three, Eve was alone and that's when Satan attacked her. Ooh, right? It would have been Adam if he would have been next to the tree. Watch out, we're not supposed to be alone. And, and you know what? I, here's what I think. I think people need to be checked up on. If you're like, man, I haven't seen that guy for a while. I wonder how he's doing. I think that's God's spirit saying, check up on him. Check up. Because maybe, just maybe, there's somebody coming to attack him. Check up, call him. Hey, haven't seen you. How you doing? How you doing? I got your back. I just want you to know this. I'm calling you today to let you know I got your back. All right, so he finishes and I'll finish. Better, there, better was a poor and wise youth. It's like a little story. than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Don't you love that? An old, foolish king. Why was he old and foolish? That's it. Don't be old and foolish. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was a stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after a win. Okay, just because you're old doesn't mean you'll be wise. There's no guarantee. Age doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. There's plenty of old fools. Just because you've gone through hardship doesn't mean you're gonna get wisdom, right? I know people that have gone through hard things and they're not wise, they're actually bitter, right? Money and education doesn't mean you'll be wise. I know people that are rich, educated fools, you can read about them all the time in the newspaper. None of these things are guarantees, right? Fame isn't. Like, it seems like every singer ends up at some point in Vegas singing at a casino. That's like the future, sadly. So there's no guarantee here, right? And then, so Solomon gives this story, like it is the best story ever. Rags to riches, poor dude, you know, stupid king, blows it, but then this poor guy, because of his hard work and whatever diligence or gift, you know, whatever, he rises up to the place of the king. You're like, awesome, we love that story, right? But then the end is, he's just forgotten. Time erases him. And that's how the chapter ends. <laughs> Even if you have a rags to riches story, nobody cares. That's Solomon. I can't end that way. So here's all I'll end instead. Our hope in chapter three is this for a king, that there's injustice and there's oppression and, and that stuff, it's, just, it's been happening for 3000 years. It's not gonna end. Our hope is the return of the king. And that's where we play, play, place our hope. And I think we like Billy Graham need to do a lot of, you know what? Our job is to love them and God's job is to judge them. He's the king. He knows motives. He knows a whole bunch more than we always are guessing at those things and we think we know more than we do. And very often we're wrong. 
It's, it's never wrong to love somebody. Never wrong to love somebody. But very often, you can make mistakes judging people, right? And then we should use our time. We should order our time. Solomon hit some really good stuff here. We should order our time into things that actually matter. What matters the most? Relationships. Remember Clinton when he ran for reelection? What was his statement when he won that? It's the economy, stupid, right? I say it with Christians, it's people, stupid. If we really think about what's going to last when the mountains around Grant's Pass have been smoothed to sand, you know what's still gonna exist? The person sitting next to you, they're eternal. So if that actually lasts, what should I, what should I be putting my time into? People. And then chapter five just says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they're doing. Listen. You know how you value people in relationships? Listen, right? I say this to husbands all the time that are having marriage problems. I say this, do one thing for me. Listen to your wife when you go home. Just listen to her, right? Because I've done enough premarital counseling and I've asked them always, hey, why'd you, how'd you know he was the one? You know what every single fiance has said? He was the first guy that listened to me. I'm like, bro, it's that simple. Go home and listen because what you're using is the most precious thing you have, which is your time. And you're saying to your wife, you mean that much to me that I'll use my most precious commodity, time, to listen to you. And what you'll find is this. People are way more interesting. Whatever app you have on your phone or whatever you're trying to, they're way more interesting than it. Much more. Listen. Let's spend a week listening to people, asking them their story. Because ultimately, people matter. So Jesus, today, we thank you for Solomon, who can poke, who can mope, <laughs> but also has these brilliant flashes of Proverbs-like wisdom. And we know two are better than one. Relationships matter. People matter. May we order our time around the priorities of what really matters. Help us in that, Lord. I pray that every person in here has somebody that's walking with them somebody that's warming their home, somebody that's saying, I got your back because we all need it. I pray that we are a people that are seeking those that have strayed just like you do. You seek after those things, reconciling and redeeming. May we be a people that do that same thing, going after people, loving them, calling them, reminding them of who they are in your son. May we do that. Would you go with us this day, empowering us this week, and may we see your kingdom come and your will being done in Grants Pass in Josephine County. And we pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.